Today, I have a message for the fathers, which I'm really looking forward to sharing with you. Some of you others may be able to get some things out of it. If you're a wannabe dad, you probably get something out of it. If you're a wife, you'll probably get something out of it. Or at the very least, you can say, remember what Pastor Greg said (laughs) on Sunday. Um, And even if you're a grandpa or a grandma, you can get something out of this. No matter who you are, uh, you can get something out of this message today, even though I'm going to be talking to the dads. So before we start, why don't we just have a word of prayer and uh, then we'll dive right in. Lord, we want to say thank you for your mercy, which is new every morning. Lord, that you come looking for us, that you're not in a faraway place that we somehow have to tease out in our morning quiet time, but you are on the edge of the seat. You are looking for us. You are waiting for us just to turn our attention to you, and there you are. You'll gulf us with your arms. You draw us close. You bring us near, Lord, without hesitation, no matter who we are and no matter what we've done. That's pretty amazing. And so, Lord, would you do that again this morning? Lord, may we sense your arms around us and you drawing us near. Would you do things by your grace that no human on their own could do, but by you working through them could do mighty and deep things. So Lord, let that be the case in our midst. Let it be true for up here at the front, but let it be true also in the seats, Lord, where we are hard, soften us, Lord, where we are distracted, bring focus, arrest our attention, Lord. May we not miss anything that you have for us today. And we just ask it all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. So I'm talking today about the legacy of fatherhood. I want to talk to the fathers, and I want to talk to especially the young fathers, because I'm an old father, I've seen some things, I've been through some things, and I want to give you a little bit of advice that'll make your fatherhood better. And you will hopefully be able to leave behind a godly legacy through your children and then your children's children, and then their children as well. Let me just say, first of all, that fatherhood is not easy. Someone has said, a father is a person who is forced to endure childbirth without anesthetic. (laughs) Sandy, my wife, actually dismissed us from our first child's birth. She thought I was overreacting or something, I'm not sure, but... And that great theologian, Ray Romano, once said... (laughs) Being a dad is like running a frat house. Nobody gets any sleep, everything is broken, and there's a lot of throwing up. (laughs) Seriously though, it's most often the most diligent of fathers that are the most challenged. They're trying to please their bosses, they're trying to respond to customers, they're trying to live up to the high standards of biblical manhood. They also want to be the spiritual leader of their home, and they want their children to grow up well. They recognize their responsibility, and many times it's like keeping several plates spinning at one time. Now, those of you who may not be familiar with that analogy, this is from years ago as a, I think it was a vaudeville act that people would, on these long spikes, flexible spikes about that high, would put a spinning plate and then they would keep it spinning like this and they'd get it going and they move to the next one, keep it spinning, go to the next one, put a plate, keep it spinning and see how many plates it could keep spinning. And of course the plates in the beginning would start to slow down and they have to go back and spin those and spin those and then put on more plates and spin and they try to keep them all going. 
I remember years ago as a young father, I was planting a church, I was raising a family, and I was trying to be a good husband. And that's exactly what I felt like. I felt like I had all these plates spinning in the air and all these plates had to keep going. Uh, if, I, if I fell down as a husband, that would affect my children, it would affect our church plant. If I fell down as a church planter, that would affect my wife, it would affect my children. If I fell down as a dad, it would affect, all the things would affect one another. And so being a godly dad who wants to pass on a legacy is not, not an easy thing. There are many times during this time where I came back to these three truths. Number one, I am a dad. There's no getting around that. Even on days where I don't feel like being a dad. Even on days where I'd rather fish all day or play video games or go to the Brewers game or whatever it might be. Greg, you're still a dad. This is your call. You are a dad. No matter what you feel like, no matter... No matter what's going on in your life, you remain a dad. That's the first truth. The second truth is I am the single most important influence on my family. Now, there might be some mothers here today who would disagree with that. But since it's Father's Day, you just keep that to yourself, okay? (laughs) I am the single most influence on my family. Dads, you're going to find out in a second how important your role is. There is not only biblical and theological evidence, but there is scientific evidence of the importance of fathers in the home. Now, we don't often talk about that in our culture because our culture is a little mixed up. But know that your place in the home is indispensable. And this was the third truth I'd often come back to. Fathering is the most important role that I will ever do. And there's a lot of important roles for us as dads. We have jobs to provide for our families. We, many of us have ministry and uh, we have hobbies and we have all these things. But there are many times when I've been distracted by these other things that had to come back to this truth. That fathering is the most important thing I will ever do. Here's the importance of fatherhood. Children growing up without fathers in the home, make up 90% of homeless and runaway youth. Children growing up without fathers in the home make up 71% of high school dropouts. Children growing up without fathers in the home make up 63% of all youth suicides. Children growing up without fathers in the home make up 72% of all teenage murderers. Children growing up without fathers in the home make up 60% of rapists, 70% of kids incarcerated, 80% of adolescents with psychiatric needs. Children growing up without a biological father in the home make up 34% of adolescents in the United States. On the other hand, children growing up with fathers are two times more likely to attend college, 80% less likely to spend time in jail, and 75% less likely to experience teen pregnancy. Scientific research has shown fathers are far more than just second adults. Involved fathers, especially biological fathers, bring positive benefits to their children that no other person is likely to bring. 
They provide protection and economic support and male role models. They have a parenting style that is significantly different from that of the mother, and that difference is important in healthy child development. This is an article written by David Papineau. A 2021 study in the Journal of Family Psychology said this. They found that warm and caring dads predict better mental health and outcomes for children. And from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, there is a growing body of research which points to the positive effects on children of having an involved father. On the average, children whose father is actively involved tend to have fewer problems with school achievement, behavior, and social interaction than children whose father is not actively involved in their life. Being a good father is one thing, but being a godly father is an entirely different thing. If we as dads want to leave a godly legacy to our children and beyond, we have to realize that God is going to ask something for us. There is a sad portion of scripture found in Judges chapter 2. This is where in the book of Exodus, Israel has been delivered from captivity. They are free and they are going to the promised land. Along the way, there are several hiccups, but finally they do enter the land. Moses is not allowed to go in, but Joshua is. And the Bible says here in Judges chapter 2 that the generation, that generation of Joshua served the Lord with all their hearts. But then just a few verses later, we read these words. All that generation was gathered to their fathers, and there rose another generation after them who did not know the Lord. We want to pass on a godly legacy to our kids. We want to be like Timothy and his mother and grandmother, where Paul speaks to Timothy and he says, says to Timothy, remember the faith that was first in your grandmother and then in your mother, and now, now is in you. That is the legacy that we want to pass on, not just good parenting and healthy children, but we want to pass on, dads, a legacy of godliness. Maybe you've heard these statistics from the life of Jonathan Edwards. You'll remember Jonathan Edwards was uh, one of the leaders of the Great Awakening in America in the 1700s. Uh, Jonathan Edwards' family was involved in the church. His wife was involved in the church. His kids were involved in ministry in the church. And this is, this, his church, although very small, was the epicenter of the Great Awakening in the 1700s. All his children served the Lord. Uh, Many of his children's children served the Lord, and he left behind a huge legacy. Let me just retell it to you. This was done from some research done at the turn of the 20th century. Of the 1,400 Edwards descendants, this person in his research was able to find 100 lawyers and a dean of a law school, 80 holders of public office, 66 physicians and a dean of a medical school, 65 professors of colleges and universities, 30 judges, 13 college presidents, three mayors of large cities, three governors of states, three United States senators, one controller of the United States Treasury, and one vice president of the United States. I want to share with you this morning three principles to lay a sound foundation for leaving a godly legacy. Here's the first one. Fathers who leave a godly legacy are first godly men. 
This is the first step. You can't give something away that you don't have. One of my favorite stories is a little boy who his dad dropped off at Sunday school every Sunday. This is Sunday afternoon and he's been picked up and now his dad and him are out fishing on the lake. It's all been quiet for a time and the son pipes up and says to his dad, dad, did you ever go to Sunday school when you were a kid? His dad answered right away, breaking the silence. Yes, son, my dad dropped me off at Sunday school as well. Son thinks about that for a little bit and responds, well, dad, I think I'm going to quit. It isn't doing me any good either. (laughs) To have a godly legacy, we must be godly. If we're going to leave a godly legacy to our children, to our children's children and beyond, we must be godly. The first part of being godly is, first of all, to be born again. That that's our first step. That this is something that can't be fake, guys. This is something that has to be done. You'll remember in the New Testament, or at least in the Chosen, Nicodemus. Someone said to me the other day, they were trying to quote the Bible and they said, or is that the chosen? I can't remember which this was. You'll remember Nicodemus in John chapter three, coming to Jesus and essentially saying, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus responds to him. He says this, he says, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus replies, he goes, well, how can I enter in my mother's womb again and be born again? And Jesus says, no, you misunderstand. You have to be born of the flesh, but you also have to be born of the spirit. What Jesus is saying here is that as he, as he spells out just a little bit farther down, just a few verses down, he says that the son came into the world to save the world, that whoever would believe in him would have everlasting life. And so there is this place for each one of us, not only the fathers, there is this place for each one of us that we must put our faith in Christ. And this is why. Because God has created us for his glory. He's created us for his glory, but all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, the Bible tells us, not even one. And so this is a problem. How do we overcome our sinfulness? Well, God made a way. He made a way in Christ. Uh, And essentially, essentially, we just put our faith in Christ, we believe in him, and we're saved. Paul says, he says, by grace you have been saved. And this is not of yourself. This is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one should boast. The idea is that it doesn't matter how smart you are, how old you are, how much money you got, how fat you are, how skinny you are. It doesn't mean all you need to do is believe in Jesus and you will be saved. This is not on your own. But it is more than just simple intellectual belief. It is more than just believing that Jesus died for our sins. Don't make that mistake. I shared this in the first service. I'll share it again. So years ago, Years ago, when these sort of things were popular, there was a man who strung a high wire across Niagara Falls. I forget his name, uh, but this is an actual event. That this man stretched a high wire across Niagara Falls, and then he got on the high wire and walked across the falls. And then if that wasn't enough, he walked back across the falls on this high wire. 
And the crowds around, they were just screaming and hooting and shouting. And this is unbelievable. I mean, this guy went all the way over there and all the way back. So he quiets down the crowd and he says, okay, how many of you think I can push a wheelbarrow across this a high wire. And they're like, yeah, yeah, you can do it. There's nothing to it. Go for it. You know, and he gets a wheelbarrow and he pushes it all the way across. Of course, it took him some time. He gets to the other end and he walks the wheelbarrow back all the way to the other end. And the people go berserk. I mean, they are just like, yes, yes, you can do it. Totally on board. And then he says, how many people think I can push someone across the high wire in the barrel? And everybody goes, yes, yes, let's see it. Let's do it. You can do it. And then he says, well, who wants to get in the wheelbarrow? <laughs> you see, that changes everything. You don't, you don't only believe, you are trusting. And this is the biblical word when we put our faith in the Lord, that we're putting our trust in him, that we're getting in the wheelbarrow. It's like, God, if you don't make it, if you don't make, if you don't take me through, I'm not going through. If you don't, if you don't do your work, I'm not going to make it. This is the difference between just believing and trusting. And so each one of us need to put our trust in him. And fathers today, let me tell you, this is the beginning of a godly legacy. This is where it starts, putting your faith in Jesus, putting your trust in him. That's the beginning. Here's the second thing. The first is being born again. The second is saying no to self and yes to the Lord. Or maybe better said, we must die to self and live for Christ. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. In another place, Paul says, I die daily that the life of Christ might be manifested in my body. This is a step beyond just being born again. This is the step where I'm not only saying no to myself in the moment of conversion, I'm saying no to myself every day. Paul says it like this, I die daily that the life of Jesus might be manifest through me. That God can manifest himself through me because I'm saying yes to him and no to myself. Jesus said it this way. He said, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will find it. He's not speaking necessarily of eternal life, although that's true too. He's speaking of the life that we live today. True life, life in the kingdom is found in saying no to self and yes to him. And this is the way that Jesus lives through us. I know a lot of people who know a lot about the Bible, but you look at their lives and it, they don't reflect Jesus. They have, they have an intellectual knowledge, but they haven't applied it to themselves. They haven't trusted him and they haven't said no to self. They're still living for themselves where they need to be living for Jesus. That changes everything. That, guys, will help us leave a godly legacy. Here's the last thing. Third, we must be full of the spirit or spiritual people. That means growing in the fruit of the spirit. That means growing in the gifts of the spirit. And that means growing and walking in the spirit. That we have the spirit coming alive in us. We are spiritual people. We're given over to the things of the spirit. If we can do this, we can be godly. And of course, guys... If you're not already feeling like, Greg, I can't do this. <laughs> you might as well just stop right now. I mean, I'm, I, you've already left me behind. Guys, none of us can do this without God's grace. 
None of us can do this without God's grace. It's only God's grace that allows us to do these things. But if we will purpose to do these things, we can be godly. We can have something to pass on. So here's the first step in leaving a godly legacy. Fathers who leave a godly legacy must first be godly men. Here's the second thing. Fathers who leave a godly legacy love their children unconditionally. Now, some of you might be thinking, Greg, this sounds more like a sub-point than a main point to me. Shouldn't this be tucked under something else? Is this really this important that we love our kids unconditionally? I think I love my children unconditionally. Do you, though? (laughs) I think this is really easy for moms. Moms would love their kids if they were all axe murderers. It wouldn't... It wouldn't bother them at all. I mean, it would bother them, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't affect them. They'd just be, come here, honey. Come here, come here. You're... But guys aren't like that. Guys aren't like that. They're like, I'm kicking this kid to the curb. I mean, he's killing people with axes. <laughs> but that's precisely what drives our kids away, dads. The moms got it. Us as dads don't. What God is asking us for is unconditional love for those kids. That they're, they're loved unconditionally, no matter what, they're, they're, what, they, what they do or don't do, does not affect our love for them. But oftentimes, our kids think it does. And so when they act out, we withdraw our love from them and think, hey, you're going to you're gonna have to do quite a bit of work to, get, to earn my love back. I don't think I'm the only one that's done this in the past. I'm thinking this morning of the prodigal son who walked away, who took his dad's inheritance. Now, now there was two sons. The the dad had two sons. The firstborn gets a double portion, so that's that's two-thirds. And so the son that walked away got a third of his dad's inheritance. A third of his dad's inheritance. And he took it and he spent it, my Bible says, translates it, on loose living. On loose living. Now we don't know what he did with that money, but he, he squandered it. And then to stay alive, he finds himself out feeding pigs. And so he's a Jew out feeding pigs with the pods. And he's looking at these pods as he's throwing them on the ground and thinking this wouldn't be a bad meal right here. And even my dad's servants get better food than this. And then I love this next phrase. When he came to his senses. I don't know if that's ever happened to you. That's happened to me on occasion. When he came to his senses... He went back to his father, and you know what he was thinking from reading the rest of the story? You know what he was thinking? He was thinking, my dad's going to put me at the bottom. I'm going to have to pay back before, before you, before I put you back to being the, you know, the son, you're going to have to pay back this third, you know? There are dads here that would do that. Right, dads? You don't have to self-identify. <laughs> there are dads here that would do that. Like, hey, you need to pay back, and this is what you need to do to get that money back. But not this father. Jesus is telling the story. And he's telling the story to reflect the love of the father for the son. And the love of the father for his wayward ones. And he says, he says the father saw him a long distance away. And I just have to imagine, this isn't biblical, guys. This is just Greg's thoughts. But I have to imagine that that father was looking for that son every day. 
I just have that feeling that he's looking for that son every day. In fact, I, I get this picture of him in his rocking chair on the front porch, just rocking back and forth, just looking down the long driveway, you know, and just, just waiting for his son's head to pop up over the hill. And he's just sitting there. Or else he's out hoeing in the field. He's out there hoeing. And every once in a while, he looks up and he sees through the heat way down to the end of the road, just saying, someday, someday, my son, I'm going to see my son walking over that hill, coming back home. Can you imagine the day that it happened? Can you imagine the longing of the father? And here he comes. First, he just sees the top of his head. He's like, whoa, who's coming down? Who's coming down the road? By the way he was walking, he thinks this could be my son. And as he's coming up over the hill, he sees his shoulders and his torso and his on that. He can't make out on his face yet, but he gets from his body movements. He's thinking this could be my son. And at some moment, he recognizes that his son that took his inheritance, went away and spent it all, is coming home. And he drops everything he's doing. He runs towards the son. He embraces him. He calls for a coat to be put on him. He calls for a ring to be put on his finger. And he calls his servants to, to make ready a banquet. The son who is dead has now returned. Fathers, I think we could read that story every day and still fall short. Still fall short of unconditional acceptance of accepting our kids, that our kids don't have to behave a certain way for our love. They don't have to earn our love. They don't have to earn back our love. They are just loved. They are just loved and cared for. Yes, this isn't saying don't discipline your kids. Heaven's sake, please don't do that. (laughs) I'm not saying don't discipline your kids, but I'm saying no matter if you're disciplining them or not, that they should know that they're loved. In our house, we had a simple discipline thing. It might be child abuse now. I don't know. You tell me. (laughs) So we had a paddle. And the only thing our kids really got disciplined for was disobedience. Anything else was forgivable. I mean, that's all forgivable, but you didn't get the paddle. But disobedience, that was the paddle. So if you said you're going to do something or you lied to us or you're, you know, something like that, you're going to get the paddle. And I really played it up. It was like, okay, go in the bedroom, pull down your pants. I'll be in there in a second. Because that's the worst part, right? Because they're in there suffering. They're like, yeah, it's coming. It's coming, you know. And uh, okay, go in there, lean over the bed, pull down your pants. I'll be there in a second. For our first two kids, that worked marvelously. They're just so obedient and compliant. And they're in there and, and they, all got, they all got one swat of the, of the paddle. One swat, that's all. But our two younger kids, I mean, they were, they're like crazy. It's like, first of all, they wouldn't go in the bedroom. Secondly, they wouldn't pull down their pants. Thirdly, they squirm like everything. I mean, the whole, the whole project went out the window. So after that was over, there was always a hug. And there was always, I love you, you know. It wasn't, I'm not disciplining you because I can't, I can't stand you. It was, it was like, it was done calmly. It was done, hey, these are the rules. You broke the rules. You get one swat. And after that, Draw the kids near. I love you with all my heart. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I had to do that. But this will make you a better person. So years ago, some of you have heard this story. And so I'll, I'll uh, make it shorter for those of you that have, have heard it. But I got to preface it with this. My, it's a story about my son when he was a young man. But uh, now he's married. He has a couple kids. We were just to our grandson's graduation party last weekend. Uh, he's got a great job. His wife has a great job. The kids are great. He's, he's, got a great. he's got a great life. I just want to tell you that up front because after I tell you this story, you'll really be wondering what's going on with my son. 
So my son, years ago, this is, uh, this is at Christmas time. And I remember that I had on, I was going to preach, and I had on my Marion and Berrien suit. Now this was back in the days when you dressed up for like Christmas and Easter. And I think on most Sundays I wore a tie, but, but I only put on a suit like, you know, for Easter and Christmas. And of course you had to do a wedding or a funeral or something like that. And I had this spectacular Christmas tie, like black with gold and green and red. And it was just, I was just so proud of it. But my son was leaving, who was probably, I don't know, my wife will tell me later, but 18 or 19, something like that. And, and he was leaving for church earlier. Like, so like about five minutes earlier, he was leaving for church and I was following right behind him. So Joe leaves for church and, and I, I'm getting ready and I'm just right behind him and I get my car and I take off and we, we live a little bit in a valley and there's a hill as we come up out of our neighborhood. And when I came up over the hill and started coming down the other side, I see my son's car pulled over on the side of the road with like five squad cars around it, all with their lights on. And I see my son as I get closer, I see my son standing by the police with his hands handcuffed behind his back. I pull over and identify myself and I go up to Joe and I'm like, Joe, what's going on? And he's like, well, I was speeding and they didn't like it. And I'm like, Joe, they don't use five squads to pull you over speeding. <laughs> and uh, they took him away. And I asked the police, can I take his car and just park it over here? And they're like, yeah, you can do that. And so then I went to preach my two Christmas messages at the church. And then tell my wife what had happened. And all the while, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not regretting having to preach, but I'm regretting having to tell Sandy what is going on with her son. So, you know, you do the pastor thing. You know, you go, you preach, you worship, you preach, you greet at the door, you ask everybody how they're doing, and they just know you're doing great because you're the pastor. And so nobody, nobody asks and... and uh, and if they did, I'd probably lie to them and say, yeah, it's going great. And so Joe would call us from jail. Could you guys come and bail me out? And I would tell his mom, no. No, we're not bailing him out. He did the crime. Now he has to do the time. And my, ma my, my wife, you know, in tears would tell him, nope, dad says no. He says you did the crime. <laughs> you got to do the time. <laughs> oh, my poor wife. And, uh, and, uh, and he'd call the next day, and it'd be the same thing for like two or three days. He'd call us, and he'd be crying. He goes, this is a terrible place. I don't want to be here. This is awful. I don't want to be here. You know, and uh, I'm just like, well, you, you did the crime, so now you got to do the time sort of thing. Well, he talks his friend's mom into bailing him out. So, so his friend, who's now a pastor in northern Wisconsin, his mom, who was a pastor's wife, uh, bailed my son out of, of, of jail. And so now Joe's coming home. Guys, I have to tell you, I was so upset with him. I was so upset with whatever he'd done. At that point, I still didn't know what he, had, what he did. In fact, to this day, I'm not absolutely sure what he did. But I was so upset because he was throwing so much away. It's like, 
It's like, Joe, I mean, you, you, you got a great family. Your parents are together. They love you. You're part of a good church and a, and a good youth group. And, and um, you know, just, I'm, just all, I'm just running through all these things in my mind. It's like, Joe, you were throwing this away. And guys, I was so angry at him. I felt like, I felt like if I saw him, I was going to choke him. That's the way I felt. And so we know he's coming home. And there's Sandy and I sitting at the table talking about what's going to happen when he, when he comes home. And if I was going to be absolutely truthful with you, which I'm going to be, it was like I felt like, if I, I felt like I couldn't even look at him. If I looked at him, I was going to do something wrong, something bad. Like, I don't know what, but I mean, I wouldn't literally kill him, but you know, I would choke him out maybe or something. I don't know. <laughs> and so I hear the car pull up in the driveway. I hear the door open. I hear the door close. I can imagine him walking up the steps and then the sidewalk to the front door and here the front door opens and in walks Joe. Sandy immediately gets up from her chair, walks towards him, throws her arms around him, draws him close and says, welcome home, son. Guys, I learned more about unconditional love in that moment than I've learned up to that moment or since. That that had such a deep effect on my life that it changed the way that I saw my kids. It changed everything. Now, now I, could, I could see the way that I was supposed to be. I could see it in that action. I could see that, that my kids are just they, just, they just need to be loved and unconditionally accepted by their dad. Now, this doesn't mean, this doesn't mean you don't discipline, as I said before. This doesn't mean that. I'm not, I'm not saying that. We still, we still need to correct our children. But what I am saying is those kids should always know that you love them. They should always know that you love them. Guys, this is so important. This is why, fathers. This is why. Because your kids will find unconditional acceptance somewhere. They will find it somewhere. And sometimes it's with people you don't want them to be unconditionally accepted with. Sometimes it's with people that are going to lead them the wrong way. Let them find unconditional acceptance at home. Let them find it at home. So the second thing is love them unconditionally. Here's the third thing. Fathers who leave a legacy train their children well. Ephesians 6, 4 says this. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Okay, so there's a few things here. First of all, it says, do not anger your children. Now, I don't want to tell any stories on myself, but let me tell a little story on my dad. I don't think my dad would be too upset about this. So whenever we were going out on a Friday night or something, my, my dad, you, we, you get money from your dad, right? That's where the money comes from, or at least it did for me when I was little. It's like, Dad, can I have five bucks to go to the movie? Yep, you could do it with five bucks back then. And take a date. <laughs> Dad, could I have five bucks to go to the movie? Five bucks, why? Because I'm, I'm, going, I'm going to the movie tonight with my girl. And uh, five bucks, you sure five bucks? How about four bucks? What about three? Could you get by with three? I'm like, Dad, just, can I have five bucks? I need five bucks. No, you can't have five bucks. Dad, why not? And it would get blow up into this big, huge thing. And before the end, I'd be angry at him. I don't think that's the best way to parent. So Paul here to the Ephesians is saying, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in discipline and instruction of the Lord. 
Okay, so there's two parts here, two remaining parts, discipline and instruction. Now, each one of these parts has two parts underneath them. So I got four points I'm going to share with you in the next 10 minutes. We're going to be done at 1230. <laughs> so discipline has these two parts. It has both affirmation and correction. Affirmation and correction. It's like the heavenly father saying to the son, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. It was affirmation that came from the Father to the Son. I noticed this about it. Because God is who he is, we know that the affirmation was heartfelt. Guys, it has to be heartfelt. You have to find something with your kids that you, that you can affirm them truly in. Now, you might think, Greg, you don't know my kids, and my kids are certainly not Jesus. But there's something that can be affirmed in everybody's life. Their needs, that's part, of, that's part of correction, is affirmation of affirming them. Because then when you correct them, it comes across a whole lot different when you've been affirming them all along. So there's this aspect of affirmation of affirming your children. I have a friend that works for the Department of uh, Motor Vehicles. He's a really nice guy. When I first met him, I said, I said, you're a really nice guy. He goes, yeah. I go, and you work for the Department of Motor Vehicles? And he goes, he goes, yeah. I go, don't you have to be mean to work there? He's like, no, they even, they even hire nice people. I go, oh, who would have known? And uh, so, but he's, he's a driving guy. He's the one that takes people out for their driving test. You know, so, so I don't know, 10, 12 times a day, he's taking people out for his driving test. So this happens every day. And so it's like, these are great stories. So every time we're together, it's like, so what happened? What, what, what happened this week? Tell, tell, tell us a driving story. Well, we're just together with him the other night and, uh, and asked him, so what's going on? Just today, just today. So I'm taking this, I'm taking this person out and uh, she's doing a great job. She's just, uh, you know, I'm saying, take a right here, you know, take a, do this, slow down, you know, and that's it. She's doing a great job, just stellar. And then I want, her to, I want her to pull over to the side so that we can parallel park or something of that sort. And he says, okay, if you can just pull over to the side and parallel park. Well, she uh, thought she was putting her foot on the brake, but she put her foot on the gas. And she zoomed off over the, over the divider in the, in, the, uh, in the road and up and, and, and my foot friend grabs the wheel and, and forces the car up on the terrace between the, between the uh, uh, sidewalk and the curb. And I go, did you yell at her? And he goes, no, I'm a nice guy. And I go, I go, well, what did you say? Did you say this is over? We're going back. And he goes, well, you know, I always try to find something affirming in people, you know? And I'm like, wow. And uh, he's, he's like, he's like, you know, I, I could tell her like, you know, you had your hand at 10 and 2, and that was, that was really great. You were really doing that great, you know. But there are these other things that now, you know, I can't give you your, I can't give you your license today. So I just tell that story that, hey, if a guy that works at the DMV can find something good and someone who goes into oncoming traffic and then up on the curb, you can find something good in your children. And fathers, if you can't, ask your wife because she has dozens of things that she can affirm in her kids. So if you can't find anything affirming, just ask your wife. She has dozens of those things. So there's the affirming part. Then there's the correction part where we actually do have to discipline them. I noticed this about the father's discipline. This is found in Hebrews chapter 12 when it talks about the father's discipline. 
that it is actually a privilege to discipline and to be disciplined because it shows that we are sons. There's also a purpose in discipline, and that is for our own good. The scriptures say there in verse 10, 12, chapter 12, verse 10. But there's also this aspect, not only of correction, but this aspect of instruction as well. And there's two parts to that. The first part is teaching, that God does actually want to teach our kids things through us. I don't know if we're the only parents who ever tried to have a morning devotional time with your kids. Can I see the parents who ever tried to have a morning devotional time? Okay, good, good. I can tell some of you were successful. We were not successful in that. Our kids hated that. We hated them because of it. And (laughs) it was just terrible. It was like right before school, we get everybody cleaned up, all dressed up. Okay, go sit on the couch. We're going to have morning devotions. And everybody just hated each other. I mean, it was just awful. I told Sandy, it's like, we can't do this. This is, this is making them worse worse kids than better kids. I mean, we need to, we need to put this aside. So then we decided, Hey, we're just going to do this. We're just going to talk to them along the way. We're just going to say, Hey, you know, you know what the Bible says about that and this, and we would, we would talk along the way. Uh, This is from Deuteronomy chapter six, God's word shall be on your heart and you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit, sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. So we were always, we didn't have those morning devotion times with our kids, but we were always talking to them in different settings about the Lord. So there's this teaching aspect. And then there's this last thing that I want to leave with you today, fathers. A godly father passes on an example to his kids. We are living examples to those around us. Kids may fail to do what we say, but they rarely fail to do what we do. And so they see us behaving in a certain way. They'll try to emulate that. 90% of the time, our kids are with us as kids and as adolescents. There's only a small part of time when they're away at school or other things, but 90% of them, their time is with us. We have a huge impact on our kids, dads, that we don't, we don't realize and a huge responsibility. The one thing here though is, we can't fake it, it has to be real. We can't fake it, it has to be real. God has never asked dads to be perfect. He's never asked any of us to be perfect. We're all broken, we're forgiven, we found grace in him, but there's none of us are perfect. But part of being a Christian is admitting our brokenness is admitting our imperfection. And so I think it's okay to let our kids know that we're not perfect. So that they know this is what it means to be a Christian. This is the example that I'm leaving you. I'm not leaving you an example of perfection. I'm not leaving you that example. I'm leaving you an example of brokenness that has been forgiven and that God has shined his grace upon. That's the example I wanna live for you, or leave for you. And you can live like that too. You can live forgiven and grace-filled and still be imperfect. That is is what I want to leave to my children. I don't want to leave that somehow you have to be perfect. And we never did that with our kids. Even as a pastor, we never did that with our kids, that you have to behave a certain way because you're a pastor's kid. We never did that because it was always bigger than that. It was always bigger than being a pastor. It's like a, a pastor's kid. It's being a follower of Jesus. It's being a follower of Jesus. That's why we live a, a certain way. But guys, let me caution you, do not fake it. Do not fake it. Our kids have the most sensitive hypocrisy meter 
than anybody. I mean, they'll sniff it out like nothing. I mean, if you, if you are faking it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to damage them. It's going to wreck them. Let me give you an example, and then I'll close. So years ago, when we were pastoring uh, a church in the university community, I had a young lady come in who was a student, and she'd gone home over spring break, and she was in her parents' home and came downstairs during the night unexpectedly and saw her dad viewing pornography on the, on the computer. And she came back from spring break and was talking to me. She, she, she was just beside herself. I mean, she couldn't even get the story out without crying. It just broke her. It just broke her. I don't know the long-term effects of that, but I know the short-term effects was something terrible for her. I also have a close friend who, for many years, has dealt with pornography. He's a godly, godly man, but he has this, he had just has this propensity for pornography. And at some point, he, at, when his kids were a certain age, he brought his wife and his kids in on this problem, letting them know that your dad is not perfect. Your dad has some serious addictive problems. But I know that I'm forgiven. I know I'm walking in God's grace. And I know he's going to help me overcome this. Guys, dads, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with your kids seeing your brokenness. That's going to make them better kids. That's going to, that's going to leave a godly legacy. Because they're going to sniff that out. They're going to sniff it out. So here's my final comments. Because of the cross of Christ, there's no sin that can't be washed away. And there is no legacy that can't be redeemed. Every day, with each passing minute, with every tiny decision, you as a dad are forming your legacy. It's not the grand moments, but rather the unremarkable, unnoticed persistence that forms a legacy. Your detailed plans of good intentions will do no good if you don't follow them with action. If you want to leave a godly legacy, get started now. Don't waste another moment and give yourself to eternal investments that will leave the greatest legacy for your children.